This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. In life, the servants and staff of Kiplin Hall move through the house silently undertaking their duties. We see traces of them in the historical record through things like account ledgers and diary entries. Then and today, they are shadows without whom Kiplin Hall could not have existed and thrived. On this week's episode of PreserveCast, we're talking with Alice Rose, Programming Curator and Project Officer of Kiplin Hall and Gardens, to discuss their latest exhibit, which explores the world of servants and how embracing a more inclusive story is building interest in this well-preserved historic home. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast today. We're very excited to be joined by one of our uh, good friends across the pond. We're talking with Alice Rose, who is the programming curator and project officer of Kiplin Hall and Gardens. This is our third visit with Kiplin Hall, um, which has a great connection, of course, here to where we record this podcast in the state of Maryland. Um, and we're going to be talking with them about a pretty exciting new project that they have um, which opens um, some doors and questions to the world of servants, um, something that they're calling silent footsteps. Um, but we're going to be talking all about that. But before we get there, um, Alice, it's great to have you with us. Where'd you grow up and and what led you to working in a historic house museum? Where was your first job in the field? What what was the what was the spark and the path that led to all of this? Well, I grew up actually relatively close to Kiplin Hall um, in a big city called Leeds, uh, which is in West Yorkshire. Uh, Kiplin Hall's up in North Yorkshire. Um, but I think definitely in American terms, it's your land is so vast, um, you would say it was very nearby. Um, so I grew up there. And then while I was growing up, Leeds is very close to the historic city of York. And so in school holidays and things like that, we would go out there as a family and go visit the sites there. And York is really well known for its archaeology. And so it got to the point where I was saying to my mum during school holidays, please, mum, can we go to York? Can we go to this museum? I want to go to that museum because I just loved history and archaeology so much. And then from there, I decided I wanted to pursue archaeology as a career. And so when I got to about 17 years old, I was looking for archaeological digs that I could go on. And there was a training dig also in York. So I started doing that and volunteering there. But in terms of my first proper job in a museum, um, it was actually working as an outreach officer. And um, so I got to go around. By that point, I was living in a, a city called Cambridge, which is in the south of England. Um, and I had a brilliant job because I went into parks around the city and got to tell children all about archaeology and do really fun activities with them. Um, so that was my first kind of proper job, as you'd say, in history and heritage. That's really cool. It seems like uh, I feel like a reoccurring theme here when we talk to folks in um, England um, and really all across Europe is that it's almost like archaeology is the the gateway um, to a lot of um, heritage jobs, whether they end up being in museums or the. But it seems like a lot of people start with archaeology and move in that direction. And I don't always think. We see that in the United States. Archaeology seems to be sort of its own subset. Um, that's the polite way of saying it. Sometimes here it's like we put the archaeologist off on the side um, and, <laughs> and, and they're, they're their own little thing. 
Um, but there, it seems like it's all so much more connected. Um, that's fascinating. And, and I think it's maybe because you do a better job and just a lot more archaeology than we do. Um, our archaeology tends to be driven mostly by whatever we're knocking over. We go in and, and try and clean it up before we do it. Um, I don't know if you if you get that sense as well, if it is sort of that's kind of the gateway. I think it definitely, well, for me, it definitely was the gateway. So I suppose I'm biased. Um, but yeah, I think the joy about archaeology is knowing that you're walking on top of your past and that you never know what could be lying beneath your feet. Um, whereas with history, you know, often you're going back to first sources and things like that and being able to look at historical documents, which, you know, has a buzz to it definitely when you go into a library or you're looking at rare books or something like that it's amazing sometimes to be looking at a document that you know no one's looked at for quite a while and things like that but I think with archaeology there's definitely something about getting your trowel in the ground and just starting to uncover something that you know no one has looked at for maybe a hundred or a thousand years yeah fascinating um and and I guess speaking of archaeology, did you any any uh, excavations that um, you wanted to bring up or something that might be a, of interest? And it was, well, I guess maybe a better way of putting it is what's the favorite thing you've pulled out of the earth? My favorite. Um, it was not glamorous, but the best thing I ever found was a Viking comb. Um, which was almost completely intact. So it would be about a thousand years old. Um, I uncovered it, took it out the ground, and then immediately beneath it was a Viking cesspit. Um, so basically a Viking toilet, which was the most unpleasant thing I've ever had to dig because, yes, it still smelt. And every time you levered some more of the straw that they used to cover what they'd done, you got another waft. Um, and at that point, I was getting public transport to and from the site. So it was really useful when you got on the train because you'd be covered in this stinky mud and no one would sit near you. Um, wow. But the comb, yes, was the, my favorite thing that I ever found. I'm into the comb. I think that's cool. And also it's interesting. We have never covered Viking poop on PreserveCast. Um, and so this is a first for us. So um, good job uh, covering, opening up some new ground um, to use an archaeological term there. So let's take a step back for listeners who aren't familiar with Kiplin Hall and perhaps they missed the previous conversations, which we can link in our show notes. Um, where is it? What does it interpret? And I guess for our own selfish uh, connections, how is it connected to Maryland? So Kiplin Hall and Gardens is in North Yorkshire. It, if you know Yorkshire really well or you have access to Google Maps. Um, <laughs> it lies on the back road between North Allerton and Richmond, which are two really great historic towns in North Yorkshire. North Allerton was um, the kind of regional, main regional hub for a long period of time. Um, so we're based there. The, way, the things that we interpret or how we tell our story is we really tell the story of the four main families who lived at Kiplin Hall. Um, who are the Calverts, the Crows, the Carpenters, and then the Talbots as well, which takes us through about 400 years of history. And during that time, the hall was only sold once, and even then it was sold to a family member. Um, so we tell that story through the objects that we have here. And then your selfish connection to Maryland, which is not selfish at all, um, is that the person who built Kiplin Hall, um, his name was George Calvert. Um, he actually was granted 
the land in Maryland. And so he founded Maryland as a colony. That's exactly right. And also we've got the Talbots. Um, We have a Talbot County here in Maryland. Um, And I love how you say it. I feel like we need to embrace Maryland. Um, We're very much more of a Merlin. um, And I think that it adds a certain air the way it's said overseas. Um, But yeah, and and, and I think it's a fascinating connection kind of seeing how Kipling is connected um, to the Maryland story. And particularly as we approach the 250th anniversary of um, American independence, it's an opportunity to stop and look at, you know, what were the connections and, and what good things were brought over and what not such good things were brought over and how we kind of grapple with that legacy. And I know you're, um, what we're going to be talking about is sort of grappling with the legacy of servitude and, and how that story is told. Um, but obviously there's also the connection to slavery and, and how that how that unfolded and, and how the great houses of England are connected to that slavery story. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that in the future here. Um, so let's talk about this new exhibit, Silent Footsteps. First and foremost, what's the impetus for the project? How do you kind of get rolling on this and what um, you know got you excited about doing it? Well, we'll roll all the way back to 2020, if anyone can remember that far back. A lot has happened since then. Um, There was um, a woman who lived, again, down south in Kent in the UK. Her name was Annie Marchin. And in January of 2020, um, she unfortunately passed away. But she was an antiques dealer and a collector of Victorian kitchen and dairying objects. Um, And our director, James, who I believe you've you've talked to on the podcast before, he was happened to be uh, one of these meetings where all museum people get together. And someone else from a Yorkshire museum said, hey, have you heard about this collection? Um, Because Annie wanted it to go to a museum. And James said, no, tell me more. And that's how it all began. So he put in a bid for this collection of kitchen and dairying objects because here at Kipling Hall in the 1970s, our domestic wing was demolished because it basically got to a point where it was virtually derelict. The buildings hadn't been used. So the decision was made to demolish most of the domestic wing. So we had no way of being able to tell that story. So the Annie Marchant Kitchen and Dairy Collection really gave us the opportunity to be able to have some objects to then be able to talk and explore that aspect of Kipling Hall's history a little bit more. So in 2021, we put on an exhibition explaining about how we acquired the collection and what we were doing to look after the collection. And then that provided us with some time to be able to then really start to delve into the history of the people who worked at Kipling Hall. And all of that is just almost this exhibition of Silent Footsteps really is the starting point to then look even more deeply into those histories. Um, So that was really the kind of impetus behind it. Um, Because the main thing is, it's important to always remember with historic houses like Kipling Hall that there were the people who lived here, but there were far more people involved in running the estate, in bringing in food from the estate, and also then making sure those people's lives just ran really smoothly and basically sorting everything out for them. Um, and often that can be missed when you're kind of going around just going, wow, look at these paintings, look at these amazing objects. And we forget that there were all of these other people involved in the smooth running of historic houses. Now, I'm curious, here in the States, there's been obviously a big push, um, and and rightly so, 
to center, particularly in houses associated with slavery, um, slaves in the story. And there now are a handful of sites, I think of Whitney Plantation in Louisiana, that approach the story and the interpretation from the viewpoint of the slave. And actually the last place that you go is the big house. And it completely changes the way you see the site. It is a site that interprets the plantation from the viewpoint of the slave, not the viewpoint of the owner. Um, are there, I mean, obviously I know you do a balanced approach to this and you're doing a great job with that. Are there sites in the UK that really just tell it from the, the viewpoint of the servants and then the last story you get is that of of the owners or have you not kind of even gotten to that point yet? I've, you've really stimulated something in my brain. I was trying to think through where and if I've come across it. I wouldn't say I've come across it anywhere where you you necessarily get that complete perspective. I do know of a couple of historic houses. I'm thinking of places like there's a house run by the National Trust down in Suffolk called Ickworth. And there you start the, the visitor journey, so to speak. You start with the domestic wing. So you start going in the domestic wing, you look around there, and then you go into the historic house. But when you're going around the historic house, you're not necessarily seeing that from the perspective the staff um one of uh, another property that i've been to called blickling which is in norfolk which actually is viewed as a kind of sister property to kipling hall in terms of its architectural style um they also did do a very good um dramatic presentations um where you could go and you'd be walking around and you walk into a room and you'd have, you know, the Lord and Lady of the Manor having tea, but you would have the servants in there too. You'd walk past the back stairs and you would hear and see the servants starting to come back down the back stairs and having a conversation about it. So again, I, I don't think actually over here in the UK necessarily anyone's really targeted it from that viewpoint, which actually could be a really interesting take on things. Yeah, absolutely. So Back to silent footsteps for a second. Um, so you're you're using these objects to interpret the story. You talk about Victorian. I guess you're defining that as the reign of Queen Victoria, or is it late Victorian, middle Victorian? What what time period are you are you kind of targeting, and what how are you telling the story? So you have all these objects, but what kind of methods are you using to tell the story? So if someone came and visited, what what kind of an experience would they get? So what's the time period and what's the experience? So in terms of Victorian. I'm taking a loose approach to that. So very much the reign of Queen Victoria. Um, we might end up delving a little bit into Edwardian, just tapping our toes in. Um, the main focus of the exhibition at the moment is around 1851. Um, part of the reason for that is British census returns. Um, so we have the UK census that is taken every 10 years that um, you know, writes down where people live, people's names, ages, occupation. Um, the 1851 census for Kipling Hall is really good because it provides us with a lot of detail about literally what jobs everyone did. Um, the 1841 census, which is the first census, um, it just says domestic servant, so it doesn't provide us with as much information. Um, so that pl plants us in terms of Kipling's history in the time of the fourth Earl of Tyrconnell, John Delaval Carpenter and his wife, Sarah Crow. Um, so it, at the moment, it mainly centers around that time period. I've mentioned the census returns. So the approach I've taken with the interpretation 
is actually playing with that idea about historical knowledge. Because one thing I noticed very early on in doing the research was that we have gaps in our knowledge due to the historical record and due to the nature of these people's lives. And they weren't necessarily written about as much as the people who lived at Kipling Hall. They might have been illiterate. We don't have correspondence from them, things like that. And so we're very reliant on things like the census returns, which are national documents. That only then gives us a snapshot of every 10 years, which gives us a huge gap in what was going on. Um, we then have extra snippets from accounts uh, that the Earl of Tyconnell kept, and also sometimes his diary entries mention members of staff, um, but it's very scant. So when I was thinking about, right, we don't necessarily have all the information, we don't even have the rooms to be able to present to people. How do how do I how do we approach this? Um, and so it came to me this idea of using silhouettes because silhouettes, of course, would have been popular at the time during the Victorian period, but also it really represents how in life these people would have almost been shadowy figures. You know, you would have walked into a room, it would have been beautifully presented, but no one was there. Silently walking around the house, which is the inspiration for the title silent footsteps but in life they would have been quiet and like shadows but also in death they are quiet and like shadows um so we've used these silhouettes to then be able to tell the story so when you go in you'll notice on the walls there are painted murals of things that we know from the inventory were in the house but of course are absent now so things like a range cooker you see a painted range cooker with the objects that we do have in the collection then on display on that range cooker. Um, down the centre, there's a servant's hall table. Each place is set for one of the staff, members of staff, um, and they each have a plate that has a silhouette representing who they were, along with a little card just explaining a little bit of information about that individual person. And again, that kind of shows, you know, for some people it might only be a paragraph, because we don't know that much about them. For other people, we have a full page of A5 and we could have written more because we know a lot about them. And so hopefully people will get that notion of from history, we just get the snippets of information and particularly with people who were working class. That is especially true. Well, I think it's a, it's a great conversation to have, particularly because we just interviewed a silhouette artist um, uh, about how the, all that is done and sort of the artistry behind silhouettes. So it's a it's a great connection to that. Um, why don't we take a quick break here, come back, and then we'll talk about how audiences are reacting to this and, and how, how programming like this is uh, becoming more popular. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work. And there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, the campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP is an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. 
Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're joined by Alice Rose, who is the programming curator and project officer of Kiplin Hall and Gardens. We've been talking all about what Kiplin is all about and their new exhibit, Silent Footsteps. So, Alice, I'm curious, how do English audiences react to these stories of servants and people who made the life possible? And we talked about how, you know, a lot of people go to these house museums and just get enamored with all the cool things that they see. Um, are, are audiences more interested in, in things like this? Have shows like Downton Abbey um, made this kind of programming more desired, more critical for house museums to invest in? Are people looking for these kinds of stories now? I think definitely there's a big appetite for people to be able to explore these stories. I think Downton Abbey has definitely been a bit of a pushback with that because it's got people really thinking about it. But I'd say even before that, people were starting to say, you know, you walk around a historic house and yeah, you go, oh yeah, this is really cool. Oh, another brilliant Rembrandt painting. Oh yeah, blase. Um, but, but you don't see yourself there because the majority of us, I would assume, do not, you know, have Rembrandt paintings or really fancy paintings or, you know, an 18th century settee in our house. Um, and it's hard to connect with that sometimes. And actually, you then start to think, well, how, how do I connect with this? And actually, I think most of us could see ourselves being more in that domestic role. I mean, again, the majority of us probably have to do some washing of dishes and, you know, having to sort stuff out for other people and things like that. So it's a lot easier to be able to identify with that lifestyle. And the amount of times you hear people saying, you know, they'll read like a job description of a footman or of a housekeeper and go like, hmm, if I was alive then, that's what I'd have been doing. I wouldn't have been living in this house. I'd have been doing that. And um, so I think it really helps people to connect with the house a little bit more. But I also think, again, it's really important to actually, it's everyone's history. Um, and again, you know, to, to ignore those people is neglecting an aspect of the history of these houses as well, because without those people, the estate just simply wouldn't have functioned. And as well as the relationships, you know, they had with the people who were employing them. I mean, some of these people, um, for example, John Alton, who was a butler here at Kipling Hall, he actually worked here for 50 years. He worked for Robert Crow, who was Sarah's dad, and then worked for the Ticonnells. He was here for over 50 years. After he'd been here for 44 years, the Earl of Ticonnell threw like a bash for him. And they, you know, had alcohol, all of the local tradespeople clubbed together to buy this guy a couple of silver cups. They got one engraved and then one so he could use it. Um, and it's just amazing to think, you know, if we didn't explore that history, we never would have known that. And that also tells us a lot about how close, you know, they must have been in, you know, when you're even when you're looking through account entries, you know, John Alton was doing a lot for the family and going above and beyond. So you can see that there was almost a friendship there, um, as well as that employee staff relationship, too. And it's just so exciting to be able to start to explore those. And again, I think it's things that it, it brings the humanity back into heritage and historic spaces. Do you have the cups? We don't have the cups. If anyone has the cups, let us know. <laughs> 
Okay. Well, that's good. We'll, we, we'll put on an all points bulletin for his cups. Um, that would be, that would be quite the thing to see. Um, so, uh, how long will the exhibit be up for and what, what comes next? Well, it's definitely going to be up until we close this year in November. Um, so until November 2022, but I'm already getting a little bit of peer pressure for us to put this out for another year. Um, so it might be that it continues and extends into 2023 as well. Um, in terms of what's next, oh, where do we go from here? <laughs> um, over the next few years, we've got a couple of themes plans um, just in terms of our programming here at the hall. Um, so this year, not only are we looking at silent footsteps and the lives of the staff who lived and worked at Kipling Hall, but also a lot of the people who, um, the families who lived at Kipling Hall made impacts around the globe. Of course, for example, George Calvert, um, going over to, shall I say it in your way, Maryland. Maryland. You can't um, even you can't even say it. You you, I know, you, you, but, you can't yeah. even bring yourself to say it with without some panache. Just just do it like you'd normally give do it, it to in us. a British way. Yeah, yeah. When George Calvert came over to Maryland. Oh, um, I love it. I love it. All day long. Um, yeah, it's um it's celebrating those international connections. So we're gonna be doing that this summer. Mm -hmm. And then next summer, we'll be looking more at our grounded in North Yorkshire. Um, so getting very, I'll do my Yorkshire accent. We'll be getting very Yorkshire next year. Um, and then the following year, likely to be looking at things. Uh, a lot of the families were very into theatre and musicals. So we'll be exploring mm -hmm. that all in a big build up to um, 2025 when we'll be celebrating the 400 years of Kipling Hall and when it was built by George Calvert. Wow. And then we've got to we got to figure out how to get you over in 2026 to the United States to talk about Kipling Hall here and the connection with uh, Maryland's uh, founding European families. Um, so um, as the world opens following lifting of some of the pandemic measures and obviously, you know, it sort of remains to be seen how this is all going to play out. But if people came and visited Kiplin or they're thinking about a trip coming overseas, what else could they do to extend their visit in the region? What else is there to see? What are some of your favorite things in, in your area? So I definitely say I currently live in North Allerton. So I recommend going to North Allerton because um, it's just a really nice historic town to go and visit. It's got a historic high street. Um, if you're a massive fan of Kiplin Hall um, and you come and see the Silent Footsteps exhibition, the housekeeper, Mrs. Wheatley, she got married after she lived here. She's got a memorial to her husband that's in the main church in North Allerton. And you can also go to North Allerton Cemetery and see where she's buried. Um, so I'd recommend going to North Allerton. Um, I'd also say go up to Richmond because um, Richmond in North Yorkshire is just, again, a brilliant historic town. Um, it's got wonderful museums there. So there's Richmondshire Museum and also Green Howard's Museum, but also, of course, Richmond Castle as well, which is a medieval castle. But also um, prisoners of war were kept there. Um, it was actually conscientious objectors, um, I'm sorry, from the First World War were also held there too, which is absolutely fascinating story and history. Um, then if you're willing to travel a little bit further afield, um, I've always got a bit of a soft spot for York. Um, as a city and a historic city, but also the countryside around here is just unparalleled. We call Yorkshire God's own county because it is so beautiful. 
Um, so I recommend come, bring your walking boots, go into the Yorkshire Dales, go over into the North York Moors and just really enjoy the wonderful countryside we have over here. You're really selling it. I feel like I just need to get my get my wellies and come on over and have you have you walk us around. We'll do a preserve cast on the ground. How's that sound? Yeah, well, and you definitely would have to try a Yorkshire pudding. If you haven't had a Yorkshire pudding and a roast beef dinner, you've not been to Britain. I haven't. So, I mean, I have to do, I have to do all of these things. Um, all right, before we go, this has been so much fun. We'll have, we'll have to have you back again. Um, and, uh, and, and chat about all these cool things, but what's your favorite historic place or site beyond Kiplin Hall? A simple question, right? Yeah, totally simple. Um, <laughs> I would, since I've already told you about Richmond Castle and cool stuff near me, um, I'll tell you a little bit about, um, I, again, harking back to my archeology, span um, I recommend a visit to the Yorkshire Wolds. I mean, it's brilliant over there. It's a prehistoric landscape where you can still see evidence of Iron Age barrows um, in kind of like the hills and the countryside as you're walking around. Um, and unexpectedly, I recommend a trip to Hull. I really like a museum I used to work at called Hull and East Riding Museum. There is absolutely brilliant archaeology in those things and no one really expects it to be there because Hull within the UK is known as a very industrial type town and um, known for shipping industry and fishing. Um, but actually it's got amazing archeology, span amazing archeology span in East Yorkshire. Um, so I think one of my favorite places is just wandering outside, trying to look for bits of archeology span in the landscape. Fascinating. So much fun to talk with you. So cool to see what's going on um, overseas at, at a place that holds a special place in our heart here in Maryland. Um, and um, looking forward to talking with you again soon about what's coming up next at Kiplin Hall. Thanks so much for joining us today, Alice. Thanks for having me too. It's always great to be able to gush about history with someone. <laughs> Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.